0: This land is your land, and this land is my land. From the California to the New York Island, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters, this land was made for you and me.
1: Welcome back to American Song. Today we find ourselves in the first decades of the 20th century. The early decades of the 1900s were a time of social changes and unrest. The poet, W. H. Auden, wrote his epic poem, The Age of Anxiety, about the isolation, loneliness, sense of purposelessness, and spiritual emptiness that he saw everywhere. Try this quote from it. We would rather be ruined than changed. We would rather die in our dread then climb the cross of the moment and let our illusions die. People living in those days were really unhappy in a world that they had changed so much. Major events like the Industrial Revolution, World War One, massive migration to city living and all the technology like cars, planes, radio, television, it all made them feel powerless and alienated. For a lot of people, trusted institutions that had always provided comfort like religion and democracy weren't providing the answers people were looking for. Anyway. In music, no one made their points better than Woody Guthrie. In these years, Guthrie and a number of folky musicians like Pete Seeger, Joshua, Burl Ives, and others started doing something that hadn't been done before in American music. They used it as a weapon against the things they thought were wrong in the world. As i went walking i saw a sign there and on the side it said no trespassing but on the other side
0: it didn't say nothing and that side was made for you and me
1: for instance Woody guthrie's guitar had the words this machine kills fascists as a people Americans are inclined towards optimism and a belief that if things aren't working, they can be fixed. How improvement is defined, which issues get the focus? In the shadows of the steeple,
0: I saw my people in the relief office. I saw my people, they stood hungry. I stood there asking, is this land really me? Me as I go walking my freedom highway, nobody living can make me turn back.
1: This land was made, made for you and me. And how those improvements are managed comes down to party philosophy. Practically speaking, America has been a two party system with a number of other minority parties that represent the people that don't line up with everyone else. On the left, We've had three parties, progressives, socialists, and communists. Progressives believe that science, technology, economic development, and social organization can be used to improve the human condition. Progressives believe that the main block in improving the lives of the middle and lower classes is the economic inequality between the rich and the poor. Socialists and communists go a step further, and they believe that the only way to level the playing field is to abolish private ownership. At the dawn of the 20th century, America was like a thoroughbred racing stallion, restless in the gates, every muscle tensed to explode into motion. We'd already become almost unrecognizable from what we had been just a short century ago. Like the passengers on the Titanic, we did not see the various icebergs looming in the fog of the future.
2: If you want higher wages, let me tell you what to do. You got to talk to the workers in the shop with you. You got to build you a union. Got to make it strong. But if you all stick together, boys, it won't be long. You get shorter hours. Better working conditions. Vacations we pay. Take a kid to the seashore. It ain't quite this Since just after the Civil
1: War, we'd gone from being a mostly rural farming nation with pockets of industry and in a few northern cities To a nation where industrial giants like John D. Rockefeller, J.P. Morgan, and Andrew Carnegie started off poor, built massive wealth and powerful corporations of oil, railroads, and steel, respectively. It was an unregulated era, no controls on whatever greed-oriented decisions might do to harm consumers, workers, or, as we're contending with now, the environment government, and the industrial tycoons were deeply in each other's pockets, so what you got were tragedies like the garment factory fire at the Triangle Shirtwaist Company. That building caught fire. And the women workers who were locked in the room on an upper floor of the burning building either died directly in the fire or jumped to their deaths to escape it. There was no OSHA, no worker safety regulations in place. Authors like Upton Sinclair wrote books that peeled the gold building, to use a phrase Mark Twain created, right off of industry, exposing capitalism's ugly underbelly where immigrant workers lost their lives in nightmare stockyards and slaughterhouses where the sole goal, profit, kept workers in inhumane working conditions, consumers purchased products that caused more harm than good, and the government's official position was caveat emptor, Latin for let the buyer beware. But as a result of the public outcry created by guys like Sinclair and others who were labeled radicals and communists, laws slowly began to change in directions less favorable for business but better for everyone else. And this is an important point. Whenever big business starts getting forced to do things that people with an actual social conscience would do because it's the right thing to do, they start labeling the people working for change as radicals, agitators, reds, and lately, snowflakes. As the aughts and the teens of the 20th century gave way to the roaring 20s, and America's economy was superheated, Regular folks started investing in corporations for the first time ever, putting their money in the banks. Consumerism became almost like the national religion. Got a problem? Buy a gadget and fix it. Nirvana, not the band, and ecstasy, not a pill, are just one more purchase away. And then, just when it seemed like the party would never end, the get-rich-quick train everybody was riding on smashed right into a brick wall.
3: I'm just a poor wayfaring stranger Traveling through this world of woe And there's no sickness, no toil, no danger In that fair land to
1: which I go People living on farms got wiped out when the prairie soil, no longer nourished and plowed by the hooves of 60 million buffalo, gave out. And the winds of the Dust Bowl blew the topsoil in all directions. And farms that their grandfathers and fathers had lived and died on were repossessed by bankers who thought only about profits and nothing about people. The ride was over, and we were now in the Great Depression. As Americans lay there, reeling, trying to get over the economic bedspins that the Jazz Age bathtub gin binges led to, they wondered how they were going to recover. A new sense of disappointment and betrayal began to settle in. People were promised that the banks and corporations would bring everybody a better life. All they had to do was give up who they were and what they traditionally stood for. And things would be wonderful. But they found out They'd put their faith in the false messiah. Sound familiar? A lot of angry people felt like capitalism had done them wrong, and a new voice was out there, offering solutions that seemed better and fairer for regular people. A different approach than what people thought had led them to the brink, with 25% of the country out of work, and people losing their homes and living in shacks. Unemployment insurance was just one example of some of the economic plans proposed to help the millions who suddenly found themselves in these dark situations teetering on homelessness. Initially, the American Federation of Labor linked the idea to the Communist Party and voted the proposal down. When profit is king, nothing else matters. America's minorities were the hardest hit by the depression. In response, the CIO, the Congress for Industrial Organizations, was formed to start organizing black workers into labor unions for the first time ever. Of course, social justice became an important part of what the CIO worked on and their platform called for a national anti-lynching law, an end to legal segregation and disenfranchisement in the South, as well as the elimination of racist policies and practices throughout society. Of course, the segregationist power structure saw that these activities as a threat to their kind of world and they labeled those activities as harmful to their traditional version of that down-home way of life, you know, grandma, grandpa, apple pie, and lynchings. However, communists and those who joined in the struggle for greater equality started promoting a new message that black lives matter as much as the lives of any American. As I said, progress in America seems to move slowly. Sometimes in America today, you and I are protected as regular individuals against some economic forces that threatened our ancestors. For instance, unemployment insurance. Today, we can count on it. It's not a lot, to be sure, but if you're in a situation when you suddenly find yourself out of a job, you can rely on it to carry you through until you're back in the green again. We can still make our rent and put food on the family table. That wasn't always true. Imagine you're a minority, living in a place where some people don't like you because your skin isn't the right color. Someone decides to accuse you of a crime you never committed. There have been, and in some places still are, times when guilt or innocence is determined by the color of your skin. Effective legal defense is sometimes hard to find. But the good news today, as long as we protect and defend the changes that have been made, is that there are more laws and groups and associations to protect regular folks, especially minorities. These all seem like great wins for the little guy, don't they? They're the kind of things we love about America, right? I mean, America is a land of equality and justice for all. And everyone has a fighting chance to succeed. And these kind of laws are the sorts of ideas and protections that come from believing in the American way. Democracy, capitalism, right? Actually, no. If you look into how many of the laws, protections, and financial support systems that common ordinary citizens have won over the last hundred years or so, the American way fought against them tooth and nail every inch of the way. In the first decades of the 20th century, more people were starting to notice that the land of milk and honey was a place where workers got milked and there was very little honey to go around. And that frustration and a desire to create an America that resembled the promise that the people had been given could be heard in the music more and more. This
3: train is bound for glory, this train. This train is bound for glory, this train. This train is bound for glory. Don't ride nothing but the righteous and the holy. This train bound for glory,
1: this In a lot of ways, things here in the old U.S. of A. have improved since those days. For sure, there's been more regulation. We've got a minimum wage law now. Working conditions are safe, and living standards in America are much better than they were 100 years ago. When we look through the years, we can see that things got better because a lot of people, from different political philosophies, invested their lives in making it that way, including members of the two major parties. Many times... Change has been pushed from the minor parties until it became an important rallying point and the Dems, or the Republicans, backed those movements. Today's episode is all about the first of the two 20th century waves in the folk music movement and how that movement rallied people behind some big themes to help them fight for social justice, a phrase we're hearing so often in the news again today. To some people, including musicians like Woody Guthrie, Pete Seeger, Josh White, and others, socialism and communism seemed like the solution. There was even a slogan in those years that said, Communism is 20th century Americanism. Thankfully, our heritage, national character, and our value system were important guardrails during many of those years, and we never experienced the bloody revolutions, gulags, dictatorships, or party purges that other nations did. Welcome to American Song, Episode 11. Folk music stood for America. This train,
3: this, train black, this, train, this, train, this train don't carry white or black on this train. This train don't carry white or black on this train. This train don't carry white or black. Everybody riding is it, treated just alike on oh, this train. Now for
1: Lots of folks back east this leaving. Let's talk about Woody Guthrie. Woody Guthrie was one of the great folk music artists during the first folk movement. His music championed some of the great causes of his time, and he said, I am out to sing songs that will prove to you that this is your world, and that if it has hit you pretty hard and knocked you for a dozen loops, no matter what color, what size you are, how you're built, I am out to sing the songs that make you take pride in yourself and in your work. And the songs that I sing are made up for the most part by all sorts of folks just about like you. The 1930s folk movement was very political. The people making and promoting the music were energized by more than just love of the music. For them, the music was an instrument to recruit and organize the working people in the country behind political change. Capitalism was the root cause of the social problems of the day, and the world still hadn't seen the worst that communist systems could produce, like gulags and dictator states. So a lot of people were very attracted to the promises that communism presented. Years ago, Dylan wrote a song called Union Sundown. One line from that song rings appropriate here. It sure was a good idea till greed got in the way. And so it went with communism. A system that took everything from everybody. Unless you happen to be a party boss. Don't believe me? Do some homework on where China's princelings, the children of the Chinese party leaders, go to university, where they hold jobs, and what their lifestyles are like. Anyway, back to our story. You might say that there are two types of people involved in this first folk phase. Musicians who wanted to preserve what we called old-time or mountain music in an earlier episode of American Song, and another politically-minded intellectual elite that saw it as a form of propaganda that could be used for their aims. To capture the second group's idea of a singable lyric, try this. We are the builders. We build the future. The future world is in our hands. We swing our hammers. We use our weapons against our foes in many lands. And we, the workers, who are the builders, we fight. We do not fear to die. All power and freedom unto the workers is our defiant battle cry. Ah, uh, no. Not exactly a campfire song, is it? Not unless the campfires are started by people throwing Molotov cocktails. Guthrie, like the composers of that song, had read writers like Marx and Hegel and found truth in their own experiences within the communist philosophy that said that the, quote, mode of production, end quote, in capitalist economies, such as the United States, led to people's oppression and that communism was the cure to the disease. I think you'd have to agree with the first statement. However, history has shown us that communism never delivered on its promises. Anyway, the intellectual leadership of the movement changed their tune once they noticed that these songs were not getting picked up by the masses. The Communist Party of America dropped its militancy and made peace with FDR's New Deal administration, because it was the closest thing going to the kind of utopian government the leadership envisioned. The New Deal was putting people back to work, a big departure from the traditional approach in which government didn't lift a finger to help the little guy. If the economy spun out of control, so be it. It'll correct itself. At its high point, right before World War II, the party had 90,000 members. Bankers and the preachers, the folk the musicians in this period included Pete Christ Seeger, Woody Guthrie, Burl Ives, Josh White, Aunt Southern Molly Jackson, Gen Richard Dyer-Bennett, Earl Robinson, and the American Square, Square Dance Group of New York Gave, City, to name a few. And another quote from Guthrie. He tried to explain the basically political nature of the folk music movement when he said, quote, I think real folk stuff scares most of the boys around Washington. A folk song is about what's wrong and how to fix it. Or it could be who's hungry and where their mouth is, or who's out of work and where the job is, or who's broke and where the money is, or who's carrying the gun and where the peace is. That's folklore, and folks made it up because they seen that the politicians couldn't find nothing to fix, or nobody to feed, or give a job of work to. Guthrie was a real deal in the folk music movement. He looked like he could have been the brother of Tom Joad from John Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath. Early on, he'd been a country music music radio announcer in L.A., but he quickly outgrew the limitations that playing other people's music posed, and he had a natural connection with the kinds of folks that saw music as a rallying point for a communist political movement.
0: Take a trip with me in 1913 To Calumet, Michigan in the Copper Country I'll take you to a place called Italian Hall And the miners are having their big Christmas ball They
1: loved Guthrie's rural, straightforward, homespun approach. Dancing, Most of all, they recognized that Woody was politically aligned with them. Early on, Woody was a member of a folk group called the Almanac Singers. It also included Pete Seeger and a couple other guys who mainly have been forgotten. In the years leading up to World War II, they sang traditional folk songs and songs about union building and left-wing political themes, performing for just about every radical group associated with the left. The Almanac singers saw themselves more like singing social organizers than what we'd really call a band today. They were about trying to drive people to go out and support union drives, collective labor activism, and anti-fascism. Their song, Which Side Are You On?, is a great rallying cry of a protest song designed to get people to make a commitment to the movement. The Almanacs for most of their career never pursued any kind of commercial success. Instead, their focus was totally on trying to create a separate people's culture, one that was authentic to artistic and aesthetic expression of the working class. The song has had a long life being covered by some major artists through the decades, including Billy Bragg, Natalie Merchant, Tom Morello, even the Kronos Quartet, among the long list of others. This is just one example of the long-lasting imprint that Guthrie's songs have had on American music. By now, you might be getting the notion that Woody Guthrie was a spokesperson for this movement, and, unofficially, you'd probably be right, because he also said, The biggest parts of our song collection are aimed at restoring the right amount of people to the right amount of land, and the right amount of houses and the right amount of groceries to the right amount of working folks. In today's era, the 99% and the 1%, where so much of our country's wealth is in the hands of such a tiny fraction of our citizens, and the middle class is becoming just a memory, his vision just might be worth recapturing. Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger first met on March 30, 1940, at a Grapes of Wrath benefit concert for victims of the Oklahoma Dust Bowl. Pretty soon afterwards, they began touring together, performing across the country for various labor groups, and then, in February 1941, they formed with three others, including Bess Lomax, a sister of Alan Lomax, whom we've talked about a few times in earlier episodes, and they formed the Almanac Singers ultimately, the most important political folk song group of the first wave of folk revival. Now, if you're a World War II belf, you'll remember that early on in the war, Hitler had allied with Stalin and then, without provocation, suddenly turned on him, ordering the Nazi troops to attack the USSR. This was probably the point where he lost the war and the rest was just a demolition exercise to see how much blood could actually be spilled in a four-year window. Seeing an opportunity, Great Britain and the U.S. formed an alliance in the USSR.
0: Put it there, boy, and we'll show these fascists what a couple of hillbillies can do.
1: With the collapse of the Hitler-Stalin non-aggression pact and the Soviet Union under siege, the Communist Party of America and its sympathizers, including the Almanac singers, were transformed from pacifists into warriors almost overnight. The head of the Communist Party of America coined the slogan, Communism is 20th Century Americanism and he added Jefferson and Lincoln and FDR to the European list of communist heroes such as Marx, Lenin, and Stalin. A strange pairing, to be sure. The Almanac singers' set list changed to match the times. You'd have thought you'd walked into a Boy Scout sing-along or a 4-H meeting they were so patriotic. In the new Common Front against fascism, the group performed songs such as the sinking of the Ruben James. I,
0: afraid, and I cheated her grave on the bottom of the sea. Tell me what was their names, tell me what was their names. Do you have a friend on that good Reuben James? What was their names? Tell me what was their names. you have a friend on that good Ruben James? men went down in that dark watery grave. When that good ship went down, only 44 were saved. It was the last day of October we saved the 44 from the cold ocean waters of that cold icy shore.
1: One of the lines was, Tell me what were their names? Did you have a friend killed on the good Reuben James? About an American ship sunk by a German U-boat in the early days of the war. Once branded as traitors in the commercial press and banned from the radio, suddenly the almanac singers were transformed from public enemy into friend of the people.
0: It was there in the dark of that uncertain night And we watched for the U-boats and waited for the fight. Then a whine and a rock and a great... It's going to take
2: everybody to win this war. The butcher and the baker and the clerk in the store. The guys who sail the ships and the guys who run the trains and the farmer raising wheat upon the Kansas plain.
0: The butcher, the baker, the dinker and the tailor. We'll all work behind the soldier and the sailor. We're working in the cities, we're working in the woods, and we'll all work together to deliver the
1: goods. Now, me and my boss. An unintended consequence of, of this him, was the surge. In popularity, I mean radio mostly, of their music. Suddenly, they had many more chances to perform for non-leftist audiences. Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger each got opportunities to perform individually at the White House. One of the key figures in this whole movement was Alan Lomax. He was hugely important in cultivating American folk music, and without him, a lot of the folk revival movement may not have happened, or at least not the way it did. Alan Lomax was the son of John Lomax, who was also an anthropologist that recorded authentic American music. We've talked about him in earlier episodes. Let's listen to Alan talk about his earliest memories of his father and their shared search for folk music and musicians in this 1991 60 Minutes interview with Charles Cabalt.
4: One would think that um, having been to Choate and Harvard and all that, you'd have turned out to be a more of an orthodox anthropologist than you turned out to be. <laughs> How did it happen that you got into this for your whole life? Well, I think it was because I was really the favorite son of my father, and he was always a kind of a grassroots rebel, born in eighteen sixty-five. And uh, he had a, a black companion on the little sharecropping farm that he grew up with, and he was devoted to that man. And all the way through our collecting journeys, he was hoping that he would find him because when, when um, Nat got his freedom from his bondage, that he agreed to stay on the farm for, he took his money and gold and left and then d- disappeared. And they thought he, somebody robbed him and drowned him. The father always hoped that he would find a man. And uh, he grew up beside the Chisholm Trail. He heard those cowboy songs, and all those things, and he wrote them down when he was a kid. And he secretly wanted to go up the trail with all those wild young roosters from Texas. Nobody and he had else, that in him. Nobody else wrote them down. Why did he?
5: Hmm? he I just, mean, they were
4: just considered trash, right? Well, quite a lot of other people did, too, you know, some other people who wrote poetry and had dreams you know the west was full of poets west was full of uh, and still is you know they have a whole society for cowboy poetry and that was all still already working in my father's day there were poets and there were radicals and there were all kinds of folks out there not just uh, cattle barons and uh, my father went to the university with those ideas in his head and then raised me to him he went collecting and and uh, found America. He found Jesse James and, uh, and the, uh, the Days of 49 and the Chisholm Trail and all those things. And it astounded the literary bigwigs of the day. They didn't know America had any ballads. It got, it got into your bloodstream pretty early. There. Yeah, well, Austin, where I grew up, you know, there were Mexicans there. I grew up on Chile, and the Hot Tamale Man came caroling under our window, and we'd eat a couple of dozen Hot Tamales. There was that music. And when I was in college, I used to go to San Antonio, and there were ballad singers right there on the plaza singing cowboy ballads. And the, the black church was just across the, the, the alley from where we lived, and I heard that. And then, But my father always sang songs, and my mother had a lot of songs. For instance, I was raised. Right, the national lullaby is the song that my grandmother rocked us to. You know, the one about a shoe by, don't you cry, go to sleep a little baby. When you wake, you shall have all the pretty little horses, blacks and bays, dapples and grays, coach and six little horses. That was a, Lullaby was rock bun. We put it in our book, and now it's sung, it's in movies, it's, in, it's everywhere.
1: No one did more to make folk music a national trend than Lomax. We've talked about him before. He was vital in preserving a lot of authentic blues and folk music that could still be heard in many rural pockets of America, especially in the South. He was also the host of a CBS radio show for kids called American School of the Air that ran from 1939 to 1941. Lomax had a whole family audience, too.
0: Hey, wait!
6: Hold it! Hey, take it easy! Now, just what's going on here? My
0: man, this is a hoot nanny!
1: His show... Kootenani started in 1940, and his regular guests were guys like Woody Guthrie, Leadbelly, Josh White, Pete Seeger, and many others. Through his show with Lomax, was able to introduce a large number of folk musicians to a large national audience. One of them was the great blues guitarist and singer Muddy Waters.
6: I wonder if you'd tell me if you can remember uh when it was that you made that blues mighty water
5: i made that blue up in 38.
6: remember the time and the years and the...
5: i made it up about the 8th of october in 38.
6: do you remember where you were when you were doing your singing and how, it, how I it happened know, no, i mean where you were sitting and what you were thinking about speaking the function on
0: the car and I had been mistreated by a girl, and it looked like that was running my mind to sing that song.
6: Tell me the, tell me a little of the story of it, if you don't mind. I mean, if it's not too personal. I mean, I want to know the facts and, and how you felt and why you felt the way you did. That's a very beautiful song.
5: Well, I just felt
0: blue, and the song veered into my mind and it's come to me just like this song,
6: and I started it and went on. Well, when you uh, do, do you know is that? Tune the tune for any other blues that you know?
4: Well, yes, it's been some blues play I guess.
6: What what tune other blues do you remember it runs to that same tune?
0: Well this song come from the cotton field
4: and the boy went to put the record out, Robert Johnson. He put it out walking blues.
6: What was the title he put it out under?
4: He put it out on as a name of Walking Blues.
3: Way out on that farmer's road. Now you know I'm leaving Chicago, and people I show do hate to go. You know I'm leaving here Won't be back
1: no more Unfortunately, he never found a sponsor Probably because of the political material And because it broke the color barrier By including both black and white artists Lomax also sponsored a series of very popular town hall concerts that also promoted folk music. There was a second folk music concert at the White House in March of 1941, where the cast of Hootenanny performed at a military-themed command performance before an audience that included the Secretaries of War, Navy, and the Treasury, and their wives. Like most of the first revival folk artists, Allen's politics definitely leaned to the left which made him naturally empathetic with the topics and concerns that the artists cared about. Lomax did as much as anyone to make the first revival successful. He discovered some of the artists, helped them book shows, arranged for recording sessions, exposed them to the deep well of authentic songs he documented around the country, and he helped them build an audience by giving them really valuable national airtime on the CBS network. Also, Lomax personally encouraged the political motivations of these artists. Because of him, artists like Leadbelly, Belly, Josh White, Burl Ives, the Golden Gate Quartet, and especially Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger had successful careers in the American music industry. I mentioned looming icebergs that could sink seemingly unsinkable ships at the top of this episode. By the start of the 1950s, Senator Joe McCarthy and his House Un-American Anti-Communism Committee was one of those icebergs, and the lives of many people in the entertainment field were wrecked by them.
7: She and Kylene Mayrook and Kylene Hyol for she riakus the V die Holock. The Kileris and the high into the near cus the skolo Augusim and heath Frieskaw and them centai the diddle all the dire all there or centidl all the dire all there oh
8: did it die
1: did Alan Lomit was one of those whose ships were wrecked. He came under the watchful eye of the House Un-American Activities Committee, and reading the times for what they were, he decided to be better off outside the country. So, he took off for England, where he built a new life in the budding English and Irish folk revival, inspired by what had been happening already in the U.S. Don't forget about Alan, though. We'll see him again in the early 1960s when we talk about the second folk revival.
3: captain that a man was nothing but a man before he'd let that steam bill run him down he'd fall dead with his hammer in his hand fall dead with his hammer in his hand
1: another major figure during this first wave was burlimes Ives was one of those musicians that Lomax had given a powerful boost to. Besides being a major first wave folk artist, he also had an impressive acting career. However, he achieved his success at the expense of a lot of people who thought he was their friend and colleague. His reputation, because of this, got pretty murky. During the McCarthy era. He was one of those individuals who traded his conscience for a steady paycheck while a lot of other folks just like him got blacklisted. Being blacklisted meant that you were indicted for subversion by HUAC. The industry basically dropped you from any consideration the future work. It was an every-man-for-himself era. But we're kind of starting in the middle of Burl's story, so let's go for a ride on the Wayback Machine. Early in his career, Ives had been knee-deep in the socialist movement, working alongside Seeger and Guthrie and the Almanac Singers and others back in their pre-patriot anti-war days. He even went as far in the late 40s as signing a petition circulated by a Hollywood list of who's who's called the Committee for the First Amendment. The committee's purpose was to protest the House Un-American Activities Committee's investigation of another Hollywood group known as the Hollywood Ten.
6: Are you a member of the Communist Party, or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? It's unfortunate and tragic that I have to teach this committee the That's basic principles of Americanism. That's the question. The
0: question is: Have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? I am framing my answer in the only way in which any American citizen can frame his answer. to you denied. Question then which you his Absolutely invade. Then, his then you denied,
6: do You you refuse to answer that question. Is that correct? I have told you that I will. Right. offer My beliefs, my affiliations, and Skewer everything else, the to the American public, and they will know where I stand, as they do from what I have written. Stand away I have from the stand. for Americanism for many years, and I shall stand away from the stand for the Bill of to 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 take this
1: man away from the, the committee for the First Amendment was organized by two important film directors, William Wyler and John Huston, and two actors, Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall, who actually were husband and wife as well.
3: Hello, Sam. Hello, Miss Elsa. I never expect to see you again.
9: It's been a long time.
3: Yes, ma'am. A lot of water under the bridge.
9: Some of the old songs, Sam.
3: Yes, ma'am. Where is Rick? I don't know. I ain't seen him all night.
5: When will he be back?
3: Not tonight no more. He ain't coming. He went home
9: he always leave so
3: early? Oh, he never. Well, he's got a girl up to the Blue Parrot. He goes up there all the time.
0: You used to be a much better liar,
3: Sam. Leave him alone, Miss Elsa. you bad luck time
9: Play it once, Sam. For all time's sake.
3: I don't know what you mean, Miss Elsa. Play
9: it, Sam. Play as time goes by.
3: Oh, I can't remember it myself. I'm a little rusty on
9: I'll hum it for you. Sing it, Sam.
1: Wyler directed some really important films like Ben-Hur, Roman Holiday, and the best years of our lives. Houston's distinguished career included great movies like The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, Chinatown, The Asphalt Jungle, and Pritzy's Honor. Bogart, one of the biggest leading men of his era, was in such films as The Maltese Falcon, Casablanca, and The African Queen with Catherine Hepburn. Often paired with Bogart, Lauren Bacall was the star of To Have and Have Not, The Big Sleep, and Key Largo. Anyway, these four powerful Hollywood people had come to the aid of a group of writers, directors, and producers.
3: Sam, I thought I told you never to play.
1: who had refused to answer any of the questions posed by the House Un-American Activities Committee. Eventually, they were jailed for being in contempt of Congress, and they had to serve 10 years' time. The consequences of their brave stance sent waves through the entertainment industry. The Hollywood entertainment executives convened a meeting in New York to announce their patriotic decision. Or was it just a weak need capitulation to the hysteria and paranoia of the Times? not to hire anyone suspicious or controversial. Here's something I want to make sure I emphasize for you. To be labeled as a subversive, it's not like you had to have committed any crimes. You didn't need to participate in the rabble mob storming of the U.S. Capitol building, or lie about election results, or plan an insurrection. All you need to have done was hold favorable opinions about communism, or have made positive public statements about it, or voted for socialist or communist candidates. No actual crimes are committed. Do that and you could do 10 years jail time or lose your career or both. I was blacklisted from 50 to 58 in movies and then another two or three years in television.
8: I did not get off the blacklist till 1964.
9: I wouldn't characterize my beliefs as communist beliefs. I would call them socialist beliefs. I lean a lot towards Socialism even now I don't think there's anything dirty about it
0: It always identified with working people and because my first mature feelings about politics were formed during this
9: depression and so I I became a communist I never thought there'd be repercussions particularly. Being a communist, uh, it may have been thought
1: of not socially acceptable particularly, but it was nothing you went to jail for for
3: being. And I was...
1: I, I hope nobody's listening. The next domino to fall was Congress, passing the McCarran and Smith Acts, which revoked the passports of anyone labeled subversive and barring them from any travel outside the country. In that hothouse climate, burr Lives found himself listed by HUAC as a suspected communist sympathizer. And this raises another parallel with things I see happening today. Given how weak these cases were and the kinds of things people were losing so much over, it's frightening to see the kinds of laws that were being passed at the time. Restricting travel is something that we usually think happens in dictator-type states. Not fully-fledged democracies with a Bill of Rights and 200 years of democracy and a Constitution. And most people today look at these times with shock and discomfort. So then what's happening with all these voter suppression laws? What are we becoming in America? What happened in 2020 when voting participation surprised a nation that is used to political apathy has got to continue? we have got too many people in power. Who don't value America the way they need to. This is a time to heed the reminders that have come before us, like this song by another first wave folky, Earl Robinson, and his song, Keeping Score in 44. But let's go back to Burr Lives. What came next is why I said his reputation has been forever tarnished. Even though Ives had been sympathetic to left-wing politics, he denied ever having had communist sympathies or relations. What was worse, he eventually provided the names of dozens, if not hundreds, of people he knew who did have similar leanings and whose careers were ruined, such as another folk group, the Weavers. Remember this when we talk about Pete Seeger in a little while. Trading his respectability personal conscience, and decency for money seems to have been a pretty good business move for old Burl, though. Just ask Rudy Giuliani.
4: Over the next 10 days, we get to see the machines that are crooked, the ballots that are fraudulent, and if we're wrong, we will be made fools of. But if we're right, a lot of them will go to jail. So... Have trial by combat.
1: While his friends and associates were steadily going broke and losing their careers, Ives was making out really well for himself with a steady stream of acting and record contracts. But he'd revealed who he really was, and people who were paying attention saw it. For instance, the great Southern playwright Tennessee Williams wrote a role in his play, "Cat on a Hot Tin Roof," specifically for Ives, who played the part of Big Daddy a cynical, overly macho realist. On the outside, Big Daddy was all fat and bravado, but inside he was rotting away from cancer. His character was written to symbolize America's own hypocrisy. He was such a natural in that part that he resumed it when the movie version of the play was made. This is Ives with Paul Newman in a scene from that movie.
3: Now, tell me, what are you disgusted with? Mendacity. You know what that is? It's lies and liars. Who's been lying to you, Maggie? Is your wife been lying to you? No, oh, not one liar, not one person, the not whole thing. It's the Eddie. got no, 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 I'm go. just trying to... You're just trying to concentrate, but you can't, because your brain is soaked with liquor. Just... Wet brain! It's... Mendacity. No, there's nothing wrong What do wrong you know about started. Mendacity? No, I no. I could write a book on
8: it. It's your sister calling from Memphis.
3: To hell with her. Go back. Get out of there, go on, close the door after you. Mendacity! look at all the lies that I gotta put up with. Pretense is hypocrisy. Pretended like I care for big mama, I haven't been able to stand that woman in 40 years. Church, it bores me that I go and all those swindling lodges and social clubs and money grabbing auxiliaries that's, that's got me on the number one sucker list. Boy, I've lived with mendacity. Now why can't you live with it? You've got to live with it. There's, there's nothing to live with but mendacity. Is there? Oh, yes, sir, you can live with this.
1: Ives, likewise, had big parts in The Big Country, Showboat, East of Eden, Desire Under the Elms, Our Man in Havana, and he finally played his last role in a 1980s film called White Dog, where he played a really nasty racist. I should tell you that he also got an Academy Award for the big country. He had a role in the hugely important Roots miniseries of the 1970s, and for sure, you'll remember his narrator role as Sam the Snowman in Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. While Rudolph's nose was red, Burl's was mostly brown. Way up to the bridge.
0: It's just my.
3: Funny way of laughing, yes, my funny way of
1: laughing. Your leave didn't bother me. His music career was just as lucrative, although in a lot of ways he'd sold out on his music just as much as he had on his social conscience. The guy that once told Alan Lomax that he only chose songs that quote rang true for him, ended up singing just about any damn thing people paid him to. He had a string of country hits in the early 1960s with totally forgettable songs like A Little Bitty Tear and Call Me Mr. In-Between and It's Just My Funny Way of Laughing." If you've got kids or grandkids or just a memory of when you yourself still believed in Santa, you'll remember the songs Have a Holly Jolly Christmas and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Yep, that was Burl too. He continued to stay active in folk through the end of his music career, but chose to focus on the historical, not the social aspects, by putting out mostly irrelevant collections of sea songs, religious music, and historical collections. It's not hard to guess that Burrow Live's outing of his fellow folk musicians soured relationships between himself and the crowd. Here's an example of what followed. In 1957, Pete Seeger was asked to write a review of Ives' album, Sea Shams, that I mentioned earlier. In the review, he called Ives, quote, gross and gargantuan. And he pointed out that Ives had, quote, fingered, like any common stool pigeon, some of his radical associates of the early 1940s because he wanted to preserve his lucrative contracts, end quote. Seeger went on to say that Ives was, quote, not quite intelligent enough to be honorable. from the first wave of folk music is Josh White Josh was a blues singer and like Huddy Ledbetter is also considered an authentic blues artist this is Josh singing one of his one of the earliest known recordings of this well-loved song, House of the Rising Sun his range covered every major genre of the time including pop, jazz gospel and blues he's thought of as one of the best and most famous black guitarists and singers of the 1930s and 40s. Born in Greenville, South Carolina, his musical heritage was deep and authentic in spirituals, prison songs, and black folk music. His grandfather had been a slave of the Maldeen family and, a pleasant surprise, the descendants of that family continued to support White, acting as patrons and providing and offering housing, food, and protection. White took those songs and made them popular in unexpected places like New York nightclubs and finally among European audiences. While he wasn't a very original artist, not like Robert Johnson, for instance, he was popular with white audiences, and he introduced a lot of people to the blues. In fact, his work influenced future artists, too. Zeppelin fans will remember, in my time of dying from physical defeating. this is the version that inspired
8: them. Ya
0: Of dying, I don't want nobody to mourn. All I want my friends to do come and fold my dying arms. Well, 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 so I can die easy. Well, well,
2: well. well
1: he cut his first record in nineteen twenty eight playing rhythm guitar behind a blind blues guitarist named Blind Joe Taggart. Then he moved to New York City, and his career began to take off. Pretty soon, he got a gig playing live on radio. He found an interesting way to have dual careers in the Christian music market and in the secular blues market. As a blues man, he recorded under the name Pinewood Tom. White, grew up in a very strict Christian household. His father was a Methodist minister and had ran this household in an ultra-conservative way. To get a feel for it, the only acceptable drinks were buttermilk, milk, and water. The only allowable social event was going to church, and spirituals were the only music permitted in the home. So it's not surprising that blues man Pinewood Tom had an alter ego in his career. Christian artist Josh White, the singing Christian. One of his songs as Josh White was, There's a Man Going Around Taking Names. For Ives, he also had a dual career in acting and had roles on Broadway and in Hollywood. FDR invited White to play at the White House, and he toured Mexico on behalf of the U.S. State Department, just like a lot of other major artists from those years. Check out episode 10 for more on that. Like Seeger and Guthrie and a lot of other artists in entertainment at that time, he took a strong stand against social injustice and racial prejudice. Doing the right thing is never easy, even in a country that supposedly respects freedom of speech. So, like you might guess, Hoover's FBI had their eyes on him the whole time, eventually building a file that ran to 473 pages. Obviously, White's strong stand for social justice was partly a product of his race, but it was also the result of the hardship he'd gone through after his father was unjustly imprisoned in a state asylum.
8: What is America to me?
0: A name, a man,
8: the flag I see.
1: Pastor White had beat up a white man who had been invited into the White's home refused to remove his hat, then spat on the minister's wife. After that, the family struggled economically. Josh White became his family's wage earner at the young age of six by traveling the countryside with several blind musicians and backing them up on rhythm guitar. At night, he'd sleep under the stars, catch meals where he could, and was usually dressed in rags. He was exposed to a lot of stuff kids should never be, By the time he was eight, he'd already witnessed a lynching. At the same time, the years on the road gave Josh the experience he needed to become the great musician that he did. he played all over the country, memorized hundreds of songs, and learned to play the guitar at a very professional level. By
5: 1940,
1: he'd made it a long way from those rough beginnings. People thought he was handsome, loaded with charisma, and obviously talented. He was gigging at a biracial nightclub called Cafe Society, where he entertained high society types like debutantes and visiting royalty. He sang with Lead Belly, and he co-starred with his good friend and actor, Paul Robeson, in a Broadway musical.
3: I went down to that St. James infirmary And I saw some plasma there as the Doctor Man. Now was the donor
1: doc
7: affair. The Doctor laughed
1: a great big laugh. White also had a number of major hits, says, including Chain Gang, One Meatball, son, Free and Equal and Blues, Strange no Fruit, St. Blue James Infirmer, yes, The House I Live in, and Waltzing Matilda. Having come through what he, he had, he also sang a lot of protest songs blue. about poverty and racism. And he got tight with the folk music crowd like Alan Lomax and that ilk. In 1941, he played at FDR's inaugural gala held at Constitution Hall and again at the Library of Congress and even the third time in a command performance at the White House. You need to remember that in the 30s and 40s, when FDR was president and inviting him to do these things, the country was still heavily segregated and the White House is technically in the South where Jim Crow was the law of the land. So these were subtle, but important statements that FDR was making.
8: White was
1: FDR's unofficial go-to on race issues, and get this, Eleanor Roosevelt, the first lady, was the godmother of White's third child. I mean, you just don't get much bigger than that. But wait, there's more. In 1945, he was the first black artist to do a nationwide concert tour. He received an honorary doctorate from an historically black college or university called Fisk University, and in 1950, he joined Eleanor Roosevelt on a goodwill tour of European capitals. But those icebergs that were out there, waiting to sink ships, White's ship hit one too. Just like Seeger and Guthrie and the Hollywood Ten and many others. He fell under the hateful eye of the House Un-American Activities Committee and he was interrogated by the FBI. White was no communist, but he had righteously protected America's racism and he had righteously protested America's racism and the inequalities he'd seen all his life, and he did know communists. He found himself in a no-win situation. His friends on the left were royally pissed off when he testified for HUAC. And at the same time, the right-wingers who probably had been waiting for an opportunity to knock this black man down a few pegs, blacklisted him. He couldn't find work for over a decade after that. Not in America, the land of the free and the home of the brave, oh no, not here. It's worth listening to a bit of his friend Paul Robeson in front of HUAC. I love the strength and the absolute conviction he showed in front of that powerful group. Part of his testimony is included here. To hear the entire thing, please visit the American Song Podcast page on Facebook. At
3: Bull Run and at Water Canal. every man, everywhere is the same when he's got his skin off. And that's a news, yes, that's a news. That's a free and equal blue.
5: Now, Do Mr. Uh, Robson
3: Do I have the privilege of asking who's addressing me? I'm Richard Aarons. What is your position? I'm director of the staff. Did you file a passport application in July 2, 1954? I have filed about 25 in the last few months. In July of 1954, were you requested to submit a non-communist affidavit? Under no conditions would I think of signing such an affidavit, it is a contradiction of the rights of American citizens. Are you now a member of the Communist Party? Oh, please, please, please. Please answer, will you, Mr. Robson? What is the Communist Party? What do you mean by that? Are you now a member of the Communist Party? Would you like Party? to come to the ballot box when I vote and take off the ballot and see? Mr. Chairman, I respectfully suggest the witness be directed to answer the question. You are directed to answer the question. I invoke the Fifth Amendment and forget it. I respectfully suggest the witness be directed to answer the question, whether, if he gave us a truthful answer, he would be supplying information which might be used against him in a criminal proceeding.
6: You are directed to answer, Mr. Mr. Robson.
3: In the first place, wherever I have been in the world, The first to die in the struggle against fascism were the communists. I laid many wreaths upon the graves of communists. That is not criminal. Chief Justice Warren has been very clear that the Fifth Amendment does not have anything to do with the inference of criminality, and I invoke the Fifth Amendment.
1: We've got time to talk about one more of the first wave folk musicians someone we've mentioned already a few times, but who's so important to the movement that he needs his own space. Outspoken, passionate, and a marvelously gifted musician and composer, Seeger once said music is propaganda, always propaganda, and of the most powerful sort. Our group's special task in the Workers' Music League is developing music as a weapon in the class struggle. Here he is singing a lead belly song called Good Night Irene. Irene, good night. Good night,
2: Irene. Good night, Irene. I'll see you in my dream. Some- Interestingly,
1: Alan Lomax was the one who introduced Lead Belly and Pete Seeger to each other. Over the following years, they played live shows together many times. Social action was something Pete Seeger believed in his entire life. My job, he said in 2009, is to show folks there's a lot of good music in this world. And if used right, it may help to save the planet. I think he's right. And I think we need to listen to him. He was born in Manhattan on May 3rd, 1919. His parents were musicians. His dad, Charles Seeger, a musicologist, and his mom, Constance de Cliver Edson Seeger, was a concert violinist. They eventually divorced, and his father remarried Ruth Crawford Seeger, a composer, arranger, pianist, teacher, and the first woman awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship for music. And as if that wasn't enough, she was also a collector and transcriber of rural American folk music. His background, Practically guaranteed the kind of career he was going to have, don't you think? Seeger's earliest musical experience was playing ukulele while a student at a private boarding school in Connecticut.
9: Was there a part in your when you were, um, for instance, traveling around the country as a very young man, collecting even collecting songs, performing in the in Montana places like that? Did you engage the audience like that, or were you strict? Did you pr- st- strictly a performer? I always like to get people singing with me.
7: Uh, my mother gave me a ukulele at age eight, and I've laughed to sing, how I can tell you, I can recognize, recognize pop songs of 1928, 29, 30, <laughs> i on the ukulele. I think in 31, one of the hit songs was, He's just a sentimental gentleman from Georgia, Georgia, gentle to the ladies all the time and when it comes to loving he's a real professor yes uh, just some mason dixon valentine so on, so <laughs> i'd get my
9: your eight years old playing this on the
7: on the uh, ukulele i'd accompany them all on the ukulele and i had the sheet music there and they could all sing it along with me clever rhymes but i was now becoming aware how the powers that be like to keep songs from questioning asking questions which shouldn't be asked. The exception that proves the rule was Brother Can You Spare a Dime in nineteen thirty two, just just about that time. But ninety nine point ninety nine percent of the songs were sentimental, beautiful, funny. Bing Crosby hit was hit Wrap Your Troubles in Dreams, and Dream Your Troubles Away. And Herbert Hoover Is supposed to have said to another pop singer, very popular singer, Rudy Vallée, he says, Mr. Vallée, if you can sing a song that will make the American people forget the Depression, I'll give you a medal. Yeah. So I was
9: very... They'd like someone like that now.
7: I was very conscious of uh, that pop musicians uh, mainly help you forget your troubles. Admittedly, this is one of the purposes of music. Years ago, I said... One of the purposes of music is to help you forget your troubles. Another, help you learn from your troubles. Some do. Yeah. And some will help you do something about your troubles. It's what Matisse felt about painting. Yeah. Did he say the same yeah, thing? Yeah, essentially the same thing, that it should take you away from your from the yeah. preoccupations yeah. of life. And... But uh, others help you understand your troubles, understand the world. My friend Don McLean wrote all about Van Gogh and his Starry, Starry Night. It was fantastic paintings with stars swirling around around there.
9: Do you think music can do that as effectively now as it it always has?
7: Yeah, can do it now. Yes, help you understand the world.
1: Pete discovered the five-string banjo when his dad took him to a square dance festival in North Carolina. It was love at first sight, and it became his major instrument.
2: One of my favorite songs is, is one I learned back years ago from a country and western group called the Sons of the Pioneers. It's got some yodeling in it. Riding on a freight train across the desert And he gets, th- gets thrown off Way out there A lonely spot I know Where on no man will go Where the shadows have all the room I was riding free on the old SP I'm in the southern tune When a man came along Made me hush
8: my song
2: Kicked me off the way out there. Hey, did anybody here have a yodel? Do you It's not hard. All it takes is courage. Now, you know, a yodel is just a controlled crack in the voice. Many a, an many a adolescent boy yodels when he doesn't want to. He says, Ma, where are my clean shirts? Now, all you need to do is just take a deep breath and go.
1: He attended Harvard University and he was in the same class as JFK. His original plan was to become a journalist. He founded a radical student newspaper, and he joined the Young Communist League. Seeing more of a future in music than the law, Seeger dropped out of college after his sophomore year, and, like Josh White, headed for New York City. In New York, he met Alan Lomax, who introduced him to Leadbelly and other blues and folk musicians. In a biography of Seeger's life, written years later by David Dunaway, Seeger was quoted as saying, quote, I liked the strident vocal tone of the singers, the vigorous dancing. The words of the songs had all the meat of life in them. Their humor had a bite. It was not trivial. Their tragedy was real, not sentimental. Lomax also got Pete a job cataloging and transcribing music at the Archive of American Folk Song at the Library of Congress. The songs Pete discovered in that job eventually became a big part of his set list in live concerts. Around that time, Seeger also met Woody Guthrie, an event that was going to have major impact in his life, for sure. Their first connection was playing at a benefit concert for migrant California workers. The two hitched up and traveled across the United States, hitchhiking, hopping freights, and trading songs. It sounds like an exciting, adventurous life for a young 20-something, doesn't it? If you've read Steinbeck's accounts of California and the migrant workers, You'll get a real sense for why communism struck such a major chord with guys like Duffy and Seagull. If you haven't, check out the books *Indubious Battle or The Grapes of Wrath. Such a great writer.
2: Some people I see aren't opening their mouths. They're going like... You can't yodel that way. Incidentally, if that's too high for some of you, you can yodel in harmony. You know that? The spirit overcame them. Is just three notes below the regular part. Well, here we go. Then I close my eyes to the starlit skies, lost myself in
9: dreams.
2: I dreamed the desert sand was a milk and honey land. Then I awoke with a start. There was a train coming back on that one-way track. Gonna carry me away from... passed me by i caught her on the fly climbed in an open door i looked around and saw the desert ground the spot i would see no more as i was riding away i heard that pale moon say so long pal it sure gets lonesome here Song and it's not very long, it's about a young man who never did
8: wrong. Suddenly
2: he died one
1: day. The Guthrie and Seeger eventually started a group called the Almanac Singers, which also included Bess Lomax, the wife of Alan Lomax, Millard Lample and Lee Hayes. After the Almanac singers ran out of steam for various reasons we've already talked about, Pete was drafted into World War II in 42 and assigned to a unit of performers. After the war, he went back to New York and he founded People's Songs Incorporated, which published political songs and presented concerts for several years, but the company went bankrupt. He had a nightclub career, too. He used to play shows at the Village Vanguard in Greenwich Village, which was also a hot spot for a lot of jazz artists. John Coltrane, for instance, played there, so did Miles Davis. And of course, he was politically active. For instance, he toured with Henry Wallace, the Progressive Party presidential candidate for 1948. Here's Wallace's campaign song
5: The donkey is tired and thin. The elephant thinks he'll move in. They yell and they fuss, but they ain't fooling us. Cause their brother's right under the skin. It's the same, same merry-go-round Which one will you ride this year? The donkey and elephant bob up and down on the same merry-go-round The elephant comes from the north The donkey may come from the south If you look, you'll find the donkey's behind But they've got the same bit in their mouth it's the same, same merry-go-round Which one will you ride this year? The donkey and elephant bob up and down On the same merry-go-round In 1949,
1: Pete teamed up again with Lee Hayes from the Almanac Singer days and two other folkies, Ronnie Gilbert and Fred Hellerman, and they formed the Weavers. Now, somebody named Gordon Jenkins, who was an A&R guy, he was also an arranger for a lot of Frank Sinatra's backing charts. Well, Jenkins signed them to a contract at Decca Records. And the Weavers made a bunch of popular records like If I Had a Hammer, a South African song called Wee It should have been called Mbube. But Seeger heard the original African recording wrong. An Israeli soldier song called "Sena, Senat Senat. And he even did songs in Spanish like Guantanamera.
0: I hammer out love between all of my brothers all over this land.
1: Oh, I shouldn't leave out the Weavers' cover of Lead Belly's Goodnight, Irene. We heard Pete's solo version of it a little bit earlier. In fact, it topped the charts for six months. Seeger, with the Weavers, had some pretty big hits in 50 and 51 with Kisses, Sweeter Than Wine, and a cover of his old buddy Woody Guthrie's song, So Long, It's Been Good to Know You. Eventually... The Weavers sold an amazing four million singles and albums in just two years. But then there was another iceberg. Things are going really well for Seeger and the Weavers until the House Un-American Activities Committee set their sights on the group, and here's how it all went down. The Weavers were targeted as a possible communist threat. The FBI started building a file on the band and its individual members, and a special Senate subcommittee started investigating the group for sedition. In 52, a former employee of People's Songs was questioned by HUAC, and he named three of the four members of the Weavers as Communist Party members. TV appearances started being canceled, and so did live shows, recording opportunities, and more. To fill the cancelled dates in his performance schedule, Seeger started playing solo shows at college coffee houses and churches and schools and summer camps, and he built a new audience for folk music with the younger audience. This focus on younger people, it's easy to see the way the second revival in the 60s was being set up, can't you see it? Folk music is so idealistic, and you can see how the 60s generation was heavily influenced by what Seeger was doing. He was paving a path for the new artists that were coming just around the corner. People like Joan Baez, Bob Dylan, Joni Mitchell. Remember how I said that Pete Seeger's original ambition before music was to be a journalist? Well, during those years, he also put his writing talent to work, writing a long-running column for a folk song magazine called Sing Out. And he left a big library of recordings he did for the Folkways label, too. Like Burl Lives around the same time, Seeger also recorded a super broad array of songs, everything from children's music to Spanish Civil War anthems. But just like the original Salem Witch Trials, the House Un-American Activities Committee heard a lot of great people before it was all over. In 55, Seeger was subpoenaed. In his powerful testimony, and showing way more integrity than Burr lives before him had, Pete told the committee, quote, I feel that in my whole life I have never done anything of any conspiratorial nature. I am not now going to answer any questions as to my association, my philosophical or religious beliefs, or my political beliefs, or how I voted in any election, or any of these private affairs. I think these are very improper questions for any American to be asked, especially under such compulsion as this. Here's Seeger, in 65, talking about his testimony in front of HUAC.
2: When the um, House on American Activities Committee wanted to know if you had political connections, you... want to answer and that got you into some serious trouble this is well this is because this group of people are actually uh their group in my opinion a group of american fascists their idea of america is america where everybody agrees with them uh shira of ohio was a supporter of the john birch society Uh, willis of louisiana is a small town mr big he married the daughter of the local sugar mill owner and his idea of america is uh, that small town where everybody knows their place and he's on top. Everybody's heard about taking the Fifth Amendment. You took the first. I didn't actually take any. Uh, later on, my lawyer said that the only defense he could make of me was on the basis of the first. Which guarantees? Uh, that's the one guaranteeing freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of press and religion. Uh, the Fifth Amendment, in effect, is saying you have no right to ask me this question. But I wanted to say you have no right to ask any American citizen this question. And I was challenging them on a broader basis. And a year later, the Congress cited me for contempt, along with uh, Dr. Otto Nathan, who was Einstein's friend, and Arthur Miller, the playwright. I was in good company. They were acquitted long before I was, but my trial didn't take place for four years, three, five years later. I was convicted first, uh, although it was a strange trial, the judge excused the jury every time we had one of our witnesses on there. We had Congressman Walter on the stand uh, and asked him, uh, "Do you are you acquainted with the people that run this blacklisting outfit uh, called uh, Aware Incorporated? They published Red Channels and so on. He said, no, I've never met the man. One day later, we have the head of Aware Incorporated on the stand and said, uh, uh, Quint, have you ever met Congressman Walter? He said, yes, I went down to Washington to see him. So on. He had a long interview with Walter. Well, there was Walter caught right in perjury, but the jury had been excused during all of that, you were you were convicted and sentenced. To I was sentenced year to in jail. a year in jail, but a year later I was acquitted by the appeals court. Now there were at one point just before you were either sentenced or convicted, you asked leave to sing a song in court. Yeah, you, know, you see, one of the songs they wanted to know if I'd sung is a good song. Uh, it's called "Wasn't That a Time." I think it's a highly patriotic song. But he wanted to know if I had sung it at this certain place. And meanwhile, they had come in with all kinds of statements about this was a terrible treasonous place, full of traitors. And they weren't asking me anything about that. They just said, "Have you sung there?" Well, it's like, it's, supposing I I, I, uh, I come out with a statement that a certain uh, place, uh, supposing is there a restaurant you've eaten at recently? Uh, supposing, we we call it the Purple Potato. Okay. You went to the Purple Potato to have a have a drink. Now I come out with a statement: the Purple Potato is full of of traitors, and I, I, all kinds of evidence. Now I don't even ask you about. Uh, about that, whether it's true or not. I say, have you, have you were you ever at the Purple Potato? You see? And if you say yes, why, well, right away you're associating yourself with all these traitors.
1: Seeger even offered to sing the songs that had been listed by Hueck in their inquisition, and I'm using that word inquisition with intent. It seems to me that as bright as we are, We humans have an awfully hard time remembering the lessons we should have learned from our prior mistakes. Haven't we seen these same kind of questions of mistakes before? such a long history. The Crusades, the Spanish Inquisition, the Spanish conquest of Latin America, the Salem witch trials, the Armenian genocide, Stalin's purges, American slavery, McCarthyism, American racism, the conservative Christian movement and its intolerance of everyone outside that camp, the resurgence of voter suppression in the U.S., land of equality and home of democracy, in my opinion, in my humble opinion. The running themes through this list are intolerance and fear and racism, objectification of our fellow humans, and a willingness to do just about anything to anyone as long as some supposedly higher objective is the excuse. Usually there are a lot of doers and just a handful of master puppeteers who are pulling the strings because they think they have something personal to gain. Whether it's ink and gold, or Lebensraum, or a big fat man with an orange complexion, a psychopathic lack of a moral compass and inability to feel any remorse, and the uncanny ability to play all the dumb pawns in our society for his own gain. I wonder if we can ever overcome this terrible side of our nature. ¶¶ So in 1957, in his showdown against Joe McCarthy and the House Un-American Anti-Communism Committee, Pete Seeger was indicted on 10 counts of contempt of Congress. During the five-year gap between the indictment and jail, Seeger continued to play concerts, shows that were usually picketed by far-right groups, including, but not limited to, the John Birch Society, sister organization to the KKK. Told you how Pete liked to include South African and Israeli songs in his set list, didn't I? After a five-year legal fight, Seeger was convicted in 1961 and sentenced to a year in prison. Thankfully, just one year later, though, a court of appeals dismissed that indictment as faulty. And you've got to love Seeger's unwavering belief in his audience and in his message. About those pickets, he said, all those protests did was sell tickets and get me free publicity. The more they protested, the bigger the audiences became. Isn't this proof that Lincoln's statement, you can fool some of the people, some of the time, but you can't fool all the people all the time, remains true? If you don't agree, how would you explain the 2020 US election results?
9: How am I gonna know about you, Tommy? Why, they could kill you and I'd never know. They could hurt you. How am I gonna know? Well, maybe it's like Casey says. A fella ain't got a soul of his own, just a little piece of a big soul. The one big soul that belongs to everybody. Then...
8: Then what, the?
9: Then it don't matter. I'll be all around in the dark... I'll be everywhere, wherever you can look. Wherever there's a fight so hungry people can eat, I'll be there. Wherever there's a cop beating up a guy, I'll be there. I'll be in the way guys yell when they're mad. I'll be in the way kids laugh when they're hungry and they know supper's ready. And when the people are... Eating the stuff they raise and living in the houses they build. I'll be there too.
8: I don't
9: understand it, we? Me neither, Ma, but just something I've been thinking about. Hot soup on a campfire on in the bridge. Shelter line stretching around the corner. Welcome to the new world home. Family sleeping in the car In the southwest No home, no job, no peace, no rest Well, the highway is alive tonight But nobody's kidding nobody About where it goes I'm sitting down here In the campfire line. For the, ghost
1: of time People... the best art reflects and in some ways can even change society, even if it's just one person at a time. The first folk movement shows us that. Sometimes there's a very high personal cost to pay, like the time that Pete Seeger in the Hollywood Ten served in prison, Great artists are capable of turning personal hardship into something beautiful like Josh White's Painful Childhood, which he turned into a platform for social justice. You can teach a nation to sing powerful songs about hope. Woody Guthrie did that. And when you do, you may sow the seeds of change in future generations, like the way Guthrie stood as Bob Dylan's musical mentor. But music is just the drumbeat that the rest of us have to march to. If we don't like how things are going, we're still Americans. We can still change it. We need to act on it. Gandhi said, be the change you want to see in the world. When we do, we'll see that just like things improved in working conditions and minimum wage laws and many other ways, the world can become a better place. Our country belongs to the people, not the tiny fraction on top. And this is a country that promises equality. But that equality is something that we have to continuously protect. There are always people that think they're more equal than others. We can't let them take it from us. Democracy is hard work and it doesn't last if you don't participate. There are too many people who prefer to live by mendacity. You must rise to the occasion. I hope You've enjoyed this latest episode of American Song Folk Music Stood for America You can learn more about the people and the events discussed in this episode when you visit our Facebook page Search for American Song Podcast We'll see you soon about,
9: sitting down here in the, With the ghost of old time, you